Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Jeff Mallinson. Jeff is Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Concordia University, Irvine, a 1517 thinking fellow and co-host of the Virtue in the Wasteland podcast. His most recent book is Sexy, The Quest for Erotic Virtue in Perplexing Times. In it, he acknowledges that we've got plenty of casual sex, porn, and sexual freedom to go around these days, but questions, is all of that really sexy? Does that stuff lack the joy of transcendence, flirtation, dancing, or genuine intimacy? For some, he says, the solution is louder moralizing and stricter legalistic thinking. But what if we reframe the conversation altogether? Instead of focusing on taboos, boundaries, and rules of sexual engagement, what if we let holy desire seduce people back to erotic virtue? It's a really interesting book, and we had a really interesting conversation about it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Jeff Mallinson. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much. Glad to be here. So, Jeff, you have written this book, Set the Quest Sexy, the Quest for Erotic Virtue in Perplexing Times. As a theologian, you're thinking when you put sexy in the title of a book on any topic, what's your risk reward scenario on the front end? <laughs> well, it's a huge it's a huge risk and it's terrifying um if you're worried that people don't get kind of the tongue-in-cheek nature of it, right? Um uh my my great fear was always are, are folks thinking I'm being um kind of cute and hip and that sort of thing. Uh, it actually um, it actually has worked all, out all right, but very often pastors will pick it up and want to talk about it, but they don't want to read it on the plane. Um, and, and I think that's part of why I wanted to keep it. It was the idea that people are unsure whether the, the, the very term sexy isn't somehow uh, bad. You know, is there some kind of negative morality to just the very word? And that's that's partly what I'm trying to get across. I want at the very beginning you to realize that for you to really go down this route that I want you to consider talking about sex in a certain way with the with the Christian community, with your children, whomever, uh, in a way that really forces you to to stop being so bashful about the very embodiment or the topic of it. No, you're a Lutheran. Indeed. So I'm thinking about the story about the Lutheran farmer that loved his wife so much they almost told her <laughs> you're going with a different vibe i mean you're trying to be a little more expressive right mm-hmm. around the whole around sex and the quest for the erotic yeah i mean and i think it's i think it's also very very much uh, still part of an organic lutheran uh, theology as long as we we take the big picture you know you may be thinking i don't know where that i've never heard that joke it, it's fair enough it's probably fairer for a norwegian Right, so in I, different I heard part- it in Garrison Keeler. There you go. See, that's, who, that's who what was I'm Episcopalian, actually, but well, right, but the but he knew that Scandinavian Lutheran world, which was more of the the world of Pietism, and um, the the Germanic relationship to earthiness, cussing, beer, and even sex was a lot more free. I mean, L- Luther certainly got out of hand and told fart jokes and and so forth, but he also would would make kind of casual. Um, playful, sometimes very irreverent conversation. So far jokes. Yeah. The peasants. <laughs> the Jews. The far jokes are the bad. That's not out of hand. The other stuff is out of hand, right? Yeah. But well, no, but he, he, I think it was Melanchthon or, or one of his friends. He said, hey, let's, um, you know, now that we're married, because they used to be monks and they married these, these nuns. They said, well, what we should do, uh, even though we'll be in different places, let's all have sex at the same time, so it'll be kind of like an orgy, but we won't be together in the same room, so it's not technically bad. You know, these kind of playful things. And he did this, I believe, not uh, to be titillating or, or, or just letting his worst part of his nature out, but more to say that if you really believed in um, the incarnation, if you believed in the graciousness of God, then you would have to joke like that every once in a while to let others know that you're serious about it, right? Who so made if, that joke, Melanchthon or Luther? I, I can't remember now. You know, you know what I'm talking about. I don't, you, but I'm just saying. I, I, I think, think Luther said it. I think Luther wrote it to Melanchthon. I think he. Yeah, because I see Luther making that joke. Oh yeah, no, no, Melanchthon's not going to start that sort of nonsense. No, he 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 was a he was a kind of he was yeah. a, a hanger on. Uh, but but as far as but as far as sexy goes, uh, you know, sometimes I, I regret it, but I, I regret many of the uh, the titles that I end up coming up with on things. 
Uh, this one's turned out to be a little bit better because it, it, it drives home the point. The, um, if I can show you, the, the cover has this little uh, circle on it. It has a variety of uh, meanings. Which, which looks like lipstick. You know, it, it, it could be, this is just us. We're having fun. We started out pretty uh, uh, on the nose. Uh, it could be an orifice. It is, it is the sun. It is the Tao. But really what it is in most, uh, most literalist, uh, most literal way is I asked the artist to give me something that had all of that maybe in the background, but it, it is a fertilized salmon egg. And it, it all really kind of stems from this idea that what I'm really worried about is the fact that in the process of trying to be sexually pure or whatever, the church too often, the Christian communities have thought that the real solution is to to kill sexiness, to kill the libido, to uh, essentially starve that drive for life. And the salmon is, is really the opposite of this. The salmon is saying, I know the world sometimes can seem like a struggle and I got to go swim up, you know, and jump up the little, uh, the creek and the, the little waterfall, but I'm going to do it because there's meaning. There's something I've got to do in this life. And that is to bring the next generation forward. I'm, it's about life. And uh, and then on the flip side, you have something like Viktor Frankl, the psychologist who survives the Holocaust. And when he's in the concentration camp, he, he thinks, well, this is going to be like all of my worst dreams about prison. It's going to be rape and um, homosexuality. Yeah, you this in the book, not a yeah. lot of masturbation in no. concentration camp. Because and because this is what we find right in the in, in the in the psychological field when they're diagnosing somebody's mental illness. One of the things that keeps popping up is if you're not well, if you're not whole, then you lose your sex drive. And so I'm saying it as a culture, as, a, as the Christian community, for instance, if we, we don't have a healthy kind of drive towards eroticism in the, in the best sense, that's not a good sign. That means something went wrong. Jeff, can I say something very unsexy to you? Mm-hmm. Can you make sure that you, for our listeners who are, I'll probably cut this out anyway, but yeah, that's all right. You're... You're wearing earbuds, and that little mic is hitting your shirt. And it makes a oh. screechy sound. So if you could that's just horrific. Like lean forward, or even if you could just lean forward. All right, that's horrific. I you're going to get. Sound. You're probably going to get scoliosis from this. Interview. All right, there no, you no, go. This is fine. <laughs> as long as it doesn't hit your collar. But so right. yeah. let me know if it happens again. Yeah, I, I will just say shame. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting. Also, you're pretty honest in the intro to the book. You say as you're writing this book, like. One time you're interrupted because as you're writing one of the chapters, your son was parking with his girlfriend and you got a call from the police. It was the worst. I thank you for picking this one up. No one cares about those little little bits. I'm writing the book and it's later at night and I'm very proud. I'm very proud of myself that, you know, there are going to be people I'm thinking that think I should have had a harder line. I should have been tougher. I should have written this book and really re- reasserted, you know, all the boundaries and the legalisms of, of sexual purity culture. But I had one thing on these cats, and that is I know their sons and daughters. They are sometimes my students. In other words, one of the, one of the reasons I really wanted to write this book is I would find myself, you know, um, having these distraught pastor's kids and missionary kids in, in absolute agony trying to re- reconcile or wrestle with their desires, their, uh, their life, and what the church teaches. And yet, my kids, by and large, I, could, I still can say are really, really decent kids. They're really good boys. I got two sons. Um, they're both sophomores, but one's a sophomore in college. One's a sophomore in high school. And they are just gentlemen. They are gentlemen. And it turned out my son wasn't doing anything too bad, but he was out past curfew in a car. And I get this call from Doc, uh, Sergeant Sanchez. And at first I was terrified because I thought, well, he, my son must've gotten an accident, which was terrible. And so you can imagine I was, I was feeling pretty good when it was just uh, he's hanging out, uh, and I and I, I know his girlfriend, so they were cool. But um, but then I was kind of then I was frustrated because I was just in the midst of trying to to gloat about how being cool and being able to be honest and have you know these candid conversations with the with the young people has a better effect than legalism. And I still believe it does. But it was those sorts of things coming up over and over, you know, where you know I, I feel like we're doing really well, and then my wife and I are getting in a fight and. It's, it's hard to write something like this, and I didn't want to. Um, I'm a 16th century religious epistemology expert. That's not very useful. But as much as I want to talk with students about that, most of the time uh, I'm talking about the, the ways in which uh, everything I'm talking about in class sounds great theor- theoretically, but their, their lives are disconnected. 
So when you say you're a 16th century religious epistemology expert, mm-hmm. so you're saying that you, you're working on the 16th century, the period of the Reformation and mm-hmm. other interesting things, uh, you know, subsequent to that, we get the 30 years war and, you know, things like, the, you know, these occasions and events in Western history and epistemology, I take it as kind of like, how do you know what you know? Right? Yeah. I mean, really it's just, it's a long way around saying I studied philosophy of religion, um, and specifically in the 16th century, right? It's like I, I had one of my advisors or one of my examiners was a philosophy guy, philosopher of religion, and the other guy was a Reformation studies guy. And um, I was trying to to look at a little bit of the history there, specifically how um, how Geneva uh, and Wittenberg were able to wrestle with the questions of science and um, and theology. And I was interested in the ways in which both of those places were able to allow uh, scientists to work on models that they still didn't think were biblical. And that had a real direct uh, importance for me because as a, as a guy going in to teach in the liberal arts, uh, Christian univer- uh, liberal arts world, uh, I wanted to find a better way to, to deal with the theology and science question. Yeah. And yeah, it's interesting because you talk in, in the kind of towards the front end of the book about when dealing with something like sexuality, that we need to get back to this classic sort of trinity so to speak of the good the true and the beautiful and like epistemology right the truth like how do we know what's true how do we know how we're thinking according to you know reality with a capital r or t with a capital t or something and then uh the good we could say ethics right like uh what what do we perceive this and then and then the beautiful like aesthetics you know something about these things and, and you know it seems like right in, in pre-modern times, and that's painting with a majorly broad, broad brush, but these things were seen as connected. And then post-enlightenment, these things are hard to connect. And, and it seems like you're saying that somehow something as low as the cross can get us to something as high or transcendent as the good, the true, and the beautiful and connect us back to something that seems so base like sexuality but yet really is like the incarnation of bridge between the worlds right yeah yeah i mean we call the good the true and the beautiful the transcendentals and in many ways it it takes a while it takes about 500 years but you're right the enlightenment disconnects these things uh, such that later on you'll see the the modern philosopher um, bertrand russell when asked have you written anything on aesthetics he says i i might have you know so here's somebody where you know, he's supposed to be dealing with philosophy. Philosophy is understanding all those things. But by the time, by the time Bertrand Russell's on the scene, aesthetics and ethics really become very problematic because it's hard to figure out how logic fits in with that. Um, but the, the upshot of that for, say, the church living in that same modern world is that we spend all this time hand-wringing and trying to get right the the way we're going to state the rules about, in this case, sexuality, right? It's um, most of the fights are so strange to me because I, I, for good or ill, I know a lot of the people's lives, you know, in this. You have um, almost, you know, I, I kind of remembered thinking almost none of the pastors that are kind of debating me uh, about something just, you know, casually, um, you know, I grew up with these people. And they didn't wait till they were married to have sex. Uh, they weren't promiscuous, but they never really told. And I'm not saying it made it right. It was just, what's the, what's the point? Why are you spending so much time on just the cognitive level when you've never really got to the question of what's beautiful about the sexual teachings, the sexual ethics of the church? Because the sexual ethics of the church, I find incredibly attractive. And, and really the whole point of uh, wasting, uh, you know, some of my, uh, my battery on this, or at least using my battery on it, uh, the book, uh, was that, the, to me, the number one reason that young people really aren't coming to church isn't that they need it aesthetically different. You know, you, if, you're, if you're listening and you're, you're, you're trying to grow your church, you know, you want to get uh, the young people back, you think maybe if I just have a, a cool youth pastor with tattoos and, ear, and earring, you know, the loop earrings. I've, I've got tattoos. I'm not making fun of it. I'm just saying, um, what kind of the, tattoos do you have? Well, there, you haven't gotten to the part of the book then where I, it's, it's my sexy tattoo, which caused a lot of grief. Um, I, I had a, a, a tattoo that was to kind of commemorate this, this conversation and journey, but the artist was too literal and it's a little too sexy. 
when I saw the when I saw the design, I would show it to you, but it's too hard to get to. Uh, it's on my arm. Um, but it's a it's a woman uh, uh, pouring out two cisterns, and it represents grace. So the um, it's like this archetype of uh, grace being inexhaustible, uh, being poured out of these cisterns. And it was great. My wife approved the design. She thought it was great. But the guy I went to was was pretty famous, uh, studied under the, um, you know, kind of in the trajectory of Sailor Jerry, um, that that whole thing, the Ed Hardy world. And we had the design. And then when he was uh, then when he was done showing me the design, the outline, I said, that's perfect. Um, and he said, well, I'm going to just kind of fill it in. I said, great, fill it in however you want. And he filled it in with more abs and, you know, more definition to the breasts and things. And so it literally became uh, it became too sexy. Uh, so I don't always uh, show that off. Um, but anyway, but the but the idea is you can't. Does that tattoo ever sing? I'm too sexy for this arm. Too sexy for this arm. <laughs> no, I my, in my family it's still enough of a sore subject that this that particular one doesn't uh, doesn't sing too much. I've got another one about releasing resentment. That one's easier to see. So you know we could talk about that, but it, it's not as germane. Did your parents but, talk to you about sex as a kid? Oh man, my, my well, my folks were hippies. Um, I was conceived in a tent in, in a commune in Niwot, Colorado. They eventually decided to, uh, to get a house built because when they were doing mushrooms on this hill, that was where the medicine bow spirit was close. So the answer is yes, they, they were very, you know, it was not really a, not a thing for me. And, and yet it wasn't, it wasn't like they, they got down and, you know, they gave me a real serious talk. We were just, we were just very comfortable um, as a family, they're no longer hippies. They they became real estate folks, uh, conservative Republicans, and and all of that. I don't know how that changed, but when I was young, it was it was free enough and easy. But when they moved here, that's uh, they, interesting. How, how have yeah. they? Changed? I mean, like, and when did they change? I mean, did you know them as hippies? Like, oh yeah. And yeah, then I, when did they? I'm how the did oldest. they become conservative? Repo- are they from Orange County? I mean, where are they? Hey, you know, I like this. Go where we go. Because, yeah, no, they were from, so they were from, uh, uh, we were from uh, Tenafly, New Jersey. So all our family is oh, like I know, long. I know it well. You know, okay. I know it well. So that's, and we, our family started moving out to LA the, the very same year that the Dodgers moved. And so we're Dodger fans. And so we kind of feel like we're more like a tribe that follows the Dodgers than people that are attached to New Jersey or, or wherever, right? Um, and most of the family comes out. We've still got some family back there. Um, but my folks, when they, they got in their hippie bus or whatever, and they made it about halfway when their, when their vehicle broke down, but they made, they made some friends there, uh, right there in near Boulder. And as I was saying, they, uh, they, we, they had lived in a tent up until I was born. I was born in December and it was a particularly, uh, it was a particularly cold winter. So you can imagine snow in Colorado with a, a tent and an infant didn't really work out. So they eventually built this house. Um, where I said in, in this little town, uh, Niwot. And over the years, Boulder started to, I don't know, my dad was painting houses, he, odd jobs, but Bol- Boulder started to sprawl. And so they started to get cramped out by the man. And so the man bought out my folks. So they, they bought my parents' place. And my parents all of a sudden realized that they made a whole bunch of money. Uh, that's and- when you become Republican. Okay. I thought <laughs> that, that taxes, taxes. Yeah. So, so all of a sudden they're like, wow, like we were, we were eating this brown rice. The guru Miraji was telling us was really good for us. And now we can go get some shrimp dinner. And, uh, and so the, the, the guy who like helped my parents sell the house, um, they were starting up a little place called Mission Viejo, uh, California. Now Mission Viejo is not necessarily famous to everybody, but back in the day in the 70s, and I remember seeing an old version of this on the BBC, it was one of the first planned communities. It has a fake lake. Uh, the churches are all in the same area. You can't have homeless people because the roads meander in a very planned way. And so it was called the, the California Promise. And really, my dad, they didn't really want to get into being Republicans per se, but, um, and, and you know, just joining the man. And they thought, you know, that they were going to find other like-minded hippies because California has the reputation, you know, for being the left coast. But when they got uh, to where we ended up, where, the, where his job happened to be, he realized that there was really nobody was uh, really liberal. And in fact, in Orange County, California, the Jesus freaks were really running the show and Calvary Chapel and a kind of suburban white evangelicalism. In fact, they found that 
uh, even though they had been into other new spiritual movements, that the real scene was, in fact, evangelicalism. They didn't buy into it, but they sent me to a Christian school because they wanted to get me into the, the culture so I wouldn't be uh, an oddball. Because up until this point, I had been going to a hippie, non-traditional school where I would just, I'd go to, 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 the, to the class and they'd say, hey, Jeff, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to paint my, my feelings. They said, you don't want to study math? I said, no, today I just want to keep painting my feelings. And so I would just finger paint or I'd bang on the piano and they would say, do you want to learn some scales? I'd say, no, I want to, I want to just play my feelings, you know? So by the time I get to California, I'm not really fitting in with that, um, with that kind of world that, that now is being created, the suburban world that was developed um, very intentionally and planned. So they sent me to a Christian school, and that's where I decided I wanted to study theology because I, I experienced Christianity as a very oppressive, very problematic kind of spiritual path um, in distinction or, or kind of in contrast to the stuff I was exposed to um, amongst my parents' friends who were very groovy and they had really interesting conversations around the campfire. And I found Christianity to be incredibly dull, incredibly legalistic, but I got in trouble enough that they would give me detention and I just had to sit there and read the Bible. Did your parents make, make new friends? I mean, when they're, yeah, when they yeah. become, so were their friends like the hippie refugees or were they the evangelical? No, or were they, they were, had no, cho- they had no choice. It was just young families that had new cookie cutter homes. Right. And what do pe- people just want to be loved? You know, people want to fit in. And so you, you have a way of just kind of moving into that ethos. And so, yeah, and so they were there. And, and so I kind of felt this, the disconnect just then cycle though. And I, I, um, uh, I then realized that I thought that the teachings of Jesus were incredibly potent, uh, very interesting, very powerful, and in many ways similar to, to some of the best of the other spirituality stuff, uh, and yet it avoided the culty weirdness. And, um, and so I decided in the sixth grade that I needed to become a, a, a theologian someday because all of the pastor's kids and the missionary kids that then were my, my classmates at the Christian school uh, were, were doing drugs that I'd never heard of. You know, hippies, they're known, for their, they're, they're known for their mushrooms and their weed, but these kids were talking about stuff that I still have never seen, and I, I have a lot of friends, you know, um, and I thought that was pretty, that was pretty problematic, and they, I remember one kid said once, I overheard him say, once I, you know, become 18, I'm never going to darken the door of a church again, and here I am, I don't, I'm not forced to go to church, and I just wanted to say, hey, um, there's, a better, there's a better way, and I figured there's, there's got to be a way someday that I can explain that Christianity has some great stuff to offer, but the, the way it's being communicated to the young people here, at least in Orange County, California, was more oppressive and stultifying. So you're a pretty serious kid. <laughs> like, that's yeah. to say that, right? It's, well, it's yeah. Afraid, like, I got serious be because of, well, I'll tell you this though, man. I, I got serious because I was, a, I was a happy-go-lucky kid thinking about Star Wars, walking through um, the Ironsides, you know, walking through Boulder, and having a good time. And what stopped me from having fun and being happy-go-lucky was precisely a weird form of Christianity. So I got a chip on my shoulder from the beginning. And, and uh, this is partly, you know, part of that whole life story of kind of reconciling my love and frustration with the Christian world. You have a, so, so you do kind of a glossary in the beginning of the book, which is really helpful, I found. And, and you talk about kind of the new logic. You talk a lot about the Tao and Lao Tzu. And you have some passages from Lao Tzu right? Like Chinese philosopher that sounds like they're straight out of Luther. Oh yeah. Like it's the sort of stuff like, Hey, you put up a stop sign. People are going to want to go through it. You put up a sign that says, don't walk in the grass. Everyone's going to walk in the grass. Mm-hmm. I mean, so what's interesting is like, I, I think because you talk about CS Lewis, right? But Lewis, so Lewis finds a Tao, but it's almost like Lewis finds in the Tao law. Yeah. And when you mind the Tao, you find gospel, you find that some of these great insights where actually the law constrains, like it, it can't provide what it demands, like love mm. transcendence, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Yeah. Well, what's interesting there is I, I think, the, and the reason I still say, hey, Lewis and I are on, on a similar page is just to say ultimate reality or, or the, the way the universe works, we're going to call that the way. I mean, this is, this is how things are. And so it's very helpful to have a one-syllable word for that, Tao. It's also helpful to be able to shift people's um, playing field so that the Christians aren't given the upper hand in this conversation, nor 
are we trapped in a, and, and this is very important for the sex talk, are we trapped in this weird space we're in, in the West, where a lot of our understanding of sexuality isn't the fault, and I say the negative part, it's not the fault of the Bible so much as it is uh, the intrusion of Hellenistic philosophy through really interesting guys, good, good interesting theologians like St. Augustine. Uh, Augustine, before he becomes a Christian, is hanging out with some friends, and they're really interested in Neoplatonism. And he thinks that the most important thing is to have a bunch of celibate dudes living in a frat house um, talking about philosophy. And that what's going to weigh you down. Or he what's got gonna, laid a lot before that, too. He did. And Seems then that, he might have been, it might have been a little regre- like regression. Or oh, like, totally. Yeah. But no, but see, that's the thing, because if for him, he should have been studying philosophy, but instead he was chasing girls. So girls, women became the impediment to the uh, spiritual ascent. Right. Well, I'm off the Dow here, but see, so so. But it's okay for Christians, for conservative Christians to tap into Plato and and Catholics tap into Aristotle, and we're very comfortable lionizing Socrates, such that, you know, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, for instance, kind of suggests that, of course, he's in heaven because he's, he's a good pagan. And, um, well, so, and also, Zwingli says Hercules was in heaven. <laughs> why not? I mean, that's a fun one, but there you go, fine. What so, about Thor? You, Where are we with but, Thor? But what we can't have Thor, is... Thor in heaven? Thor is heaven, man. He's, he was born there. Incredible Hulk. <laughs> Spider-Man. Listen, I don't, we're not going to get into inclusivism and universalism yet. We got to, we got to take this slow, but, but no, but so, but my problem is that, that there's often this resistance to the uh, teaching of Lao Tzu because, because he's Chinese, right? Well, what's the difference between him and, 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 and Socrates? They're both interesting philosophers. And I think in some ways, I think in many ways, uh, the Tao Te Ching resembles a, a lot of the best of the Pauline and Jesus teaching. For instance, Paul says, you know, I've learned to be content in all things. That's Taoist uh, as well. That's uh, Jesus saying, don't worry about tomorrow, live in the now. Well, we like to make fun of those things, especially in the conservative Christian West. I think we make fun of them because we're afraid of the implications. And the yeah, implications- it's interesting, right? The great, I mean, I think America's greatest theologian since Jonathan Edwards is a Lutheran, uh, Robert Jensen. And in yeah, Jensen. Theology, he says, this is one of the big mistakes we've made in the tradition, right? That, that, the church always engages every religious tradition it encounters critically. It, it lifts some things up and is critical of some things, but it kind of mistakenly treated the Hellenistic philosophical tradition as a religious, as universal truth or something. Right. He's like, it's it's right. part of the religious landscape of the metaphysical right. world, and it needs to be handled a lot more critically than we've handled it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of I hear what you're saying. We, we this kind of transcendence part of it. Some of the transcendence is good. Mm-hmm. And yet also we need to realize that contra is something like, you know, high Neoplatonism. Actually, y- you find some of the highest things down low in, 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 in the everyday embodied existence. And there's no place that's more embodied than, than sex. Yeah. And, and sex reminds us of the womb and amniotic fluid and water. And there is no image more important to uh, the Taoists, the early Taoists. And by the way, I should say... Actual Taoists are very rare. They're not they're running around. Uh, they ended up being into herbal medicine and alchemy and all this stuff. So Taoism is kind of confusing for people. I just want to go back to these philosophers. And, and, uh, and Lao Tzu says the most important thing is water. Water goes low. But l- water can destroy. Um, water can move. It's very powerful, but it's very subtle. It's very soft. It's very, you know... Um, it's not hard, but it's or powerful. Save. It can save or destroy. I mean, it kind of. It's. I mean, and think about how much water plays into the biblical narrative. You know, um, you know, it drowns the old Adam, but it also is this uh, purifying force. It's life giving. Jesus is the water of life. But most importantly, water is. Uh, it seems to be passive, but it is powerful. And it reminds me, as you said earlier, of, of Luther, because Lao Tzu is. Um, he's he's basically. Saying something that Luther is saying, Luther says, you know, you've got you to go low. You've, you know, you've got to, the theology of the cross kind of knocks you down, but then from that position, you, you can see what, what's really going on. Um, but, but Lao Tzu, in many ways, if you, and, and all the early guys, uh, Shuangzu, for instance, it's probably not true uh, timeline-wise, historically, but the stories are always, there are these Chinese legalists that think that the way the world is going to be preserved and healthy is by making sure everybody understands the rules. And if you understand the rules, then we'll be okay. And uh, the Taoists are always saying, yeah, your addiction to the rules is getting you into trouble. And, and, and the, the quote, my favorite one that really 
made it so that I had to, to explore it a good deal um, is this line, if you don't mind me reading it, lose Tao and de follows. That means if you lose the Tao, then virtue will be lost. And all you get left after that is benevolence. So instead of being an actual virtuous person, maybe you give some money to a charity. But eventually that wears out because you're disconnected from the Tao, which, as you rightly said, is not just a law, as, as, as Lewis, C.S. Lewis talks about it. But to me, it's about, I even go so far as to say the yin and yang of law and gospel, or precisely the goodness of the universe, the, the essential goodness of creation no, and the goodness like, of the like God. You tell a kid, like, look, don't run into the street when there's a car coming. Right. Right. And you have to keep telling them that. Right. But it yeah. never gets beyond that to say life is beautiful. Yeah. And gets the sense for self-preservation, not as in law, but as the gift of, hey, this is how I receive and, and live in the gift of life. Right. Like, yeah. Then the kind of the law just becomes a thing that just constrains the imagination and the heart. Right. Well, and it's yes. And it's also very unsexy because the, I, I, I'll just finish and then put this down. He says, but if you lose all that, you lose the benevolence, then you lose self-righteousness. But finally, he says, all you are left with is propriety. He writes, propriety dilutes loyalty and sincerity. Confusion begins. Now, that just sounds like some esoteric old Chinese philosophy. But here's the upshot in terms of the university life of the sexual lives of students. Down the road from us is Occidental College. And there's a young man who gets put on a sex offender registry for having consensual sex with his longtime girlfriend, uh, but they were both intoxicated. So he violated a policy of the university. He violated propriety, right? So what does this, and he gets in trouble, and it's a controversial case. And I'm not aware enough of the details to know whether this was a good young man or not. I am saying that what in the, in the secular uh, kind of left-leaning world, sexual ethics has become is legalistic. It's not about love. It's not about wholeness, fulfillment, decency, beauty, goodness. It's not about that at all. It's about just making sure the protocols are followed. It's making sure that I've signed a contract. Am I allowed to touch this part? Am I allowed to do this? You know. And to me, that's, that's again why I called the book sexy. That is so unsexy. On the flip side, you go to a Christian university up the road, you got, uh, say, Biola or something, and, and they're uh, great interested Christian kids are asking questions. How close are my hips to be towards this gal as I'm sitting next to her on a park bench? It's again, a legalistic question and, and not enough attention is being paid to some of the deeper reasons why Christians care about ethics. Specifically, Christians are supposed to care about sexual ethics because we're the kind of people who don't work transactionally. We're the people that are um, using this romance to enact the kind of love that Christ has for the church, which is an unconditional love. So we're not waiting to be. We're not even um, using, we're right? participating in almost. Yeah. Like, not yeah. even using. It's because that's even contractual. Because you're saying on the right and the left, what the right and the left have is they're both writing contracts. The specifics yeah. of the contracts are different. Yeah. Some are more restrictive, some are more free, but. And we're looking for something that's covenantal, right? Like yeah. it's, 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 and for you, sexy is your shorthand right for the intersection of the true, the good, and the beautiful. Yeah. That's and, sexy. Yeah, yeah. And also the, and also the, the choice of, of life. So just give, give one example of this. Uh, I would give this. Um, both Lewis and uh, Miroslav Volf talk about this theme, that it's okay if a couple decides that for whatever reason they should not or cannot procreate and have children, Right. They can find other ways, or if they're infertile, they can find other ways to pass on life. But if a couple says that they're not going to have children because they do not trust the universe, or that they do not trust the goodness of the world, in other words, they want to commit a kind of race suicide, that is, that life isn't worth living, that's a theological problem, that's a spiritual problem, right? Maybe they would say, you know what, there's too many people in the world, so we're going to adopt somebody from a, a developing nation. That's still sexy. That's still life. But to say that we just don't want to do this anymore, that's the cardinal sin of sloth. It's the absence of hope. And so sexy is also the, the opposite of hope. And it's the, the joy of the gift of, of this life, even though it's got all this pleasure and pain. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? 
because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico ellis brazil david zoll sari graham peter steigerwald Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlan, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Michael Butera, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Andrew Stravitz, and Jennifer Underwood. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. And so if sexy is the true, the good, and the beautiful, the intersection there, you know, therein, and you have a masturbation section and you say masturbation can be sexy. Did I say that? Yeah. I mean, well, I'm, mm, I'm, mm. you're saying it could be illicit kind of thing. I'm guessing that you're not getting to talk and focus on the family about that. Shit. Yeah. Just you say it's other, problematic. Yeah. It can be like addictive and some problems, but you're saying, yeah. You know, well, it also I, can be a natural part of. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, so uh, I, I don't think I say it exactly like that. That's, that masturbation can be sexy, but we'll, we'll, we'll say yes in this. Um, it's there, not sexy if your mom walks in on you in the bathroom. Right? <laughs> that's definitely we can true. Say that's not sexy. Well, here's here's on any think, sense of the word. No. No. Even, no. Even the truth, the rehabilitated <laughs> version, not sexy in any sense of the word. Yeah. No. I think I, I think I might have taken this out, or le- maybe I left it in. But the 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 thing, the thought experiment I wanted folks to consider, and uh, your listeners can consider, if you are the most upright family in church at the church, and you're a conservative church in a conservative part of America, and your 25 year old son marries a 25 year old young woman, and they have never experienced an orgasm ever, I don't think even the most fundamentalist uh, of us is going to feel completely comfortable with that. Because we are going to suspect that something somewhere is wrong. Um, there might be a medical Wait, condition. If it's a woman, I would think a lot of people in the country are comfortable with it. <laughs> no, if it's well, a and, man, it's different. But I mean, yes, I think I think that's where uh, you know. Uh, oh, it's entire. I mean, this is very. Uh, I like your show, man. This is good. I like this. Uh, bring me back on sometime. I'll I'll, I'll do the dishes or something because this is fun. Because because that's exactly right. Women. Women are not necessarily, we don't need them to necessarily enjoy it. We need them to at least pretend that they enjoy it. And factually, or at least the statistics show that there are, in fact, uh, young women that get all the way to marriage and have never, have never experienced an orgasm. And in fact, aren't sure if they've ever had one into their, their 30s. I mean, that, that can happen. Um, the, the very basic fact of it is the, uh, the gentleman's uh, genitals are a little bit easier to, um, to accidentally uh, <laughs> find and, and explore and more importantly, um, the, uh, the, for the most part, I, mean, I, I don't know, it was Tony Campolo or something when I was a kid who said this, um, you know, it was something like um, uh, 90% of, of uh, all young men have masturbated by the time they're 18, the other 10% are lying or something like this. It's not entirely, po- it's entirely possible that, that, uh, that there would be exceptions. But the, the thing that's, that's uncomfortable for me is that no one ever really lets these young people off the hook. And in fact, me even, I don't try to say it explicitly because I don't want to get into the business of saying this is okay and this is not okay. Um, it just makes me very uncomfortable that there's not really anybody who, if I'm being casual with, no matter how conservative, no matter how uh, restrictive they are, um, would, really, w- would really worry about any young person, uh, especially a male, having masturbated, and yet they never tell the, these kids. So these kids are walking around thinking they're committing a mortal sin every five weeks, or, 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 or every day, um, and they are, are just racked with guilt and shame, especially shame, and then this becomes something that becomes very problematic later in their actual married sexual lives. So we had somebody from like Christian Broadcasting Network wrote this book, right, about Donald Trump's faith recently. Mm-hmm. And so the Trump's like kind of, 
sexual adventures and escapades were his search for God. Right. Couldn't we just say, I mean, if Trump gets that pass, can't every teenager get that pass? Like, it's the search. Oh, yeah. If we say that for the president of the United States, I mean, like, you know, because you, you do say that these, even our wayward things are search, are, are search for the good, the true, the beautiful. And oh, yeah. it's, it's interesting because you find modesty sexy, but not for the sense of restraining the passions, but appreciating the passions. I mean, you're saying, hey, this is something explosive. And if you, it's sort of like saying, you know, if you, if you go out and, and, and find something exciting, I mean, I, I, I mean, I play, I used to be pretty good at golf. I don't play much anymore, but I remember the, the first time I played in high school, it was the only sport I wanted to play after that. I, Cause I, after a few shots in, I hit the perfect parabola shot and I wanted to kind of spend time hitting golf balls and learning about the swing because the parabola and you're saying like, Hey, the beauty of the passion, right? Mm -hmm. The sexiness will come uh, with, you know, uh, attending to the power and beauty of it. But you're also saying, hey, if you shank a, a lot of balls in the woods on the way, don't beat yourself up either. Yeah, well, you certainly can't because if because no one ever succeeds in getting anywhere if you do. So everybody, you know, uh, kind of pseudo ethicists want to spend a lot of their time talking about this in the abstract. And I'll concede whatever, I mean, really, I don't really mind conceding whatever somebody wants me to concede. I will concede that it's good not to shank a ball into the, into the, to the trap, you know? I mean, you, but that's, so what? That's how, you, that's how you're getting where you're trying to go, which is towards good as truth and beauty, as, as you said, you know? Um, but also, um, but also I, I do want to say, I mean, I look, I'll look at these things and say there is a reason why we get, uh, we have to say negative things about some of this. The, the thing that is the most worrisome to me is that the kids aren't, and I'm serious about this, they're not sexy enough. By this I mean, not only are they kind of through sometimes the church going to starve a certain kind of uh, appreciation for embodiment, but I'm worried about the, you know, what's going on in Japan. Oh yeah, we're basically just all autoerotic, right? And sex is kind of... Yeah, or, you know, or it's, there, I mean, and even then, you know, we, th we, we tend to get a lot of that because I, I was in Japan and I was surprised to find how still relatively restrained everybody is. Those things that we think of in the, you know, the American scene as the weird kind of perversions of Japanese um, hentai uh, kind of uh, manga video game, all that stuff is, uh, is often a very, uh, it's either a minority um, of people that are expressing their freedom or uh, more often is an occasional thing. So the, the, the very colorful images of, of gals dressed up as, as, you know, kind of anime characters when I was in Japan, no one would let me take pictures of them because this was their alter ego. And most of their lives, they were wearing black suits and they were just conforming. Right. So but no, the thing that is worrisome about Japan is that the kids aren't uh, finding embodied relationships. Not even that they're sitting there. It's not like they're all sitting there um, looking at porn. It's I was talking to the, the, the students out there in Japan when I was there a couple years ago. And, and I, I found that they don't even have a lot of time for that. They're so madly trying to keep up with the treadmill of existence that is essentially by the time they get to be 40, they're going to be, uh, you know, if they're going to have fun, it's going to be with their coworkers till nine at the Izakaya place. Then they go home and sleep. They get up early in the morning and start over. There's not a lot of idle time uh, and they're afraid and they haven't learned how to dance and how to flirt and how to meet people of the opposite sex and to start to have relationships. And so they're so afraid that they withdraw, and you know, you think that these kids are sitting there looking at porn. What they're looking at is a dude talking about a video game that he's playing, and it's kind of like a podcast. But you're just watching a guy playing a video game. You're not even playing the video game, watching the guy. I'm not saying it's all PewDiePie, but it's this detachment. It's this lack of embodiment, lack of touch, lack of communication, and it also is in America. So the uh, the baby boomers uh, were more promiscuous. All these people that are yelling at the students that I have to be better and to behave themselves, what they don't realize is that they themselves, on average, even those who grew up in a very conservative Christian home, were more likely to have promiscuous premarital sex. My generation was less likely. The generation after was even less likely. And the young people today, everybody wants to get on the case of the, the, um, the millennials, they hate infidelity. You know, grandpa had to have a, you know, well, everybody's got to have a mistress, see? The, the kids didn't grow up in the same world where they just married who was, you know, 
the best choice in the in the block on Philadelphia. You know, that that's actually the Aziz and Zari book, yeah, Modern study, Romance. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was like in the old days, you just, you know, you got married. It was it was the best person you could find, um, and that was good, and you were relatively happy. Every once in a while, you had passion, and that became a mistress, you know, or a lover. And that was in the world of the so-called golden era of American, you know, values. You had that. And now you've got these kids that all the oldsters want to say are so immoral. And these young people are not coming to church, as I was saying. And they won't come if you change the music and you change the decor and you have really cool programs for their interest group. They will not come, not because not even that they just think that they're they're dirty and, and shameful. They sometimes think that the church is dirty and shameful because it's bigoted. They actually think that they don't want to go to church because they don't believe in the church's sexual ethic. They think it is unethical. They often will express to me, my students will express to me, especially those who did not grow up in the church, that they're not interested in the church because it's a place that covers over coercion and molestation and the, the treatment of, of, of women in a way that is, even though for all its purity talk, is really about control. They, they rightly, I and, think. And that control leads to acting out always. Right? Oh, yeah. But, but like think about control. It's, it's not that mom and dad um, want necessarily, they do, but it's not that the older generation they think is really interested in them having happiness or sane, healthy sex lives. It's that they don't want them to defy the parental control. And the control is over the commodity, specifically for women, the commodity of their virginity. Because their virginity is an extension of the parental ego. That is, it's, it is the value that a woman brings to the family. The, the male brings earning power and potential and all this. Well, the, um, the, the idea is for these young people, they say, we're, we're fine with, with commitment and monogamy. The difference is we think also that we should be nice to transgender kids and that you could, heck, you could be polyamorous. You could be... Um, you could have same-sex um, relationships. But notice, I, I would say that it is the 1970s when you get swingers clubs. It's, it's in the 1970s that you've got the suburban families exchanging the, the keys and, and going home with their neighbor's partner. That's really, un- in many ways, I'm finding that this is unthinkable. Uh, unthinkable to most of the freshmen, sophomores, say, that, that come uh, into my classes just as they are saying that they don't really buy the, the standard rules of conservative Christianity. So they have an ethic. It's just different from grandpa's. How much do you think marriages would endure if people knew how to be sexy and flirtatious with their spouses? Because, I mean, I feel like on some of this, the lost art of the dance of, of connection and intimacy. Mm-hmm. You talk about in the beginning of the book how you're podcasting partner says something like the opposite of of addiction isn't sobriety it's intimacy oh yeah and and the dance of intimacy like i mean how Mm -hmm. i mean it's you don't hear many churches offering sunday school classes for married people with kids on the art of flirtation you do hear this you hear a lot of people that are very proud of themselves a lot of a lot of the teachers you mentioned um well you say focus on the family um the the common way of talking about this amongst evangelicals that I've run into is kind of uncomfortable in that it's, it's this, it's, I'm a heterosexual man. Sex is good. My wife lets me have sex with her every night because I am the, uh, you know, I'm the, the, the sex head of the some, household. Sex is something dirty and awful that you should save for the one you love. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean, and no, because they, I, that's kind of true, but they'll also say, no, look, sex is good. Sex is beautiful. If you wait for it, if you wait till marriage and this is all fine, but it also becomes such a burden. And so when you move from the question of premarital sex, I mean, my book goes through the stages of life. And, and when you get to marriage, um, there, I won't say his name, but there is somebody, um, I, just a few days ago, I accidentally found myself at a conference where I'm hearing this guy, and I mentioned him in my book, and he's saying how important it is to, even when you don't want to, have sex with your spouse. Now, there are times when that's just a, a wonderfully good idea, but... I felt like I needed to have a headache and curl up and read a book. I'm thinking what, whatever this guy was saying was an obligation, you know, and especially if, as you get older, you start to say, man, like, is that just something I got to do? Is that, is that male or female? Is it something we've got to do so that we can prove to ourselves, so we can prove to each other that we're still, you know, we still have the vim and vigor and also that we love each other? This is dangerous. Um, and and it, the way you see it normally in life is the is the Facebook page. 
I know so many couples that are about to get divorced, and then I see this this profession of absolute adoration on Instagram, like on, yeah, beautiful. yeah, to my beloved. And what are they doing? I think what they're doing is they're thinking that if they don't have happiness, if they're not perfectly happy, then they need to get divorced soon because their marriage is based on a concept of love that is transactional. And so if I'm not happy, that's the first step. If I ever admit that, that's the first step in um, the, the end. And in my wife and I's relationship, it was the step towards the beginning. There was a period of time where I, I had to say to my wife, I said, um, I love you. I'm not sure if I like you. And I'm not happy about this at all. And, and I had to say that recognizing that, I, that in the typical liturgy of the American world, um, well, that's, that's really dangerous. You can't admit this. But what is admitting that about? It's about being in a place that is uh, marinated in grace. It's so committed to this idea that you can be naked spiritually, emotionally, uh, in, in your conversation. You can be transparent and candid because you've got nothing to gain and nothing to lose. But specifically, it's a spiritual thing. We have this way of trying to inflate our egos where our being married is what makes us whole or our having a job or our you know, having a nice car. And I've been kind of in the mood uh, now when I'm talking uh, to groups and stuff, I, I'll say, if I really want to summarize what's in the book, and I don't say it this way in the book, it's um, you actually have to take some of Jesus' words seriously. You have to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, in a, in a, if I want to make that more metaphorically, you have to sell all of those external things that make you feel sexy, but it's not working. You're, in fact, looking not sexy at all. The dude who's got the Lamborghini who thinks now the ladies will like me is doing precisely the opposite. And I remember there was a time when my wife and I went to, um, we went out and we found ourselves close. There was a place that was more of a nightclub kind of thing, but we wanted to get some uh, hipster burgers. We were walking along the beach. So we went in. Stacy was, my wife was a little worried about it because she didn't have any makeup on and she was, you know, kind of just wearing a laid back sweater. And male and female patrons of this place kept trying to get close to her. They were almost, it was inappropriate. They were, um, they were attracted to my wife. And we kind of left. We were wondering, well, what, what was going on there? Well, we were just smiling and having a good time, and we were comfortable in our own skin, and we were being playful, and we were kind of holding hands. But we weren't doing it for any other reason than it just felt natural. That's the flow. That's, that's like kind of, that's, that's the Tao of, of Jesus, right? The Tao of love. And they were all wearing their most expensive clothes, really putting on this external appearance, and it, it showed a kind of desperation. And so part of sexiness is saying, if in a very practical way, if you really taste and see that the Lord is good, if you really understand the gospel and you let it sink in, and I talk about it more as even in a mystical kind of way, if you, if you internalize this as an experience of God's love, it will have an effect on how you physically look. You're not going to be scrunching your face up. You're actually just at peace. And that peace in, in physical ways and in other ways shows people that, that um, you're ready to actually be alive and not just this kind of false um, construct of a desperate person who doesn't actually have a soul to, to identify, but it's all this other stuff. So we could paraphrase your book with the words of Jesus, I suppose. Mm -hmm. If you want to keep your sexiness, mm -hmm. lose it. Like yeah. in some sense. And paradoxically, if you try oh, to yeah. hoard it, keep it in the kind of dark side of it, you'll lose it. If you're telling yourself, I'm a heterosexual evangelical man, I've got to make sure I make love to my wife every week, every night of the week, um, you're, you're, you're going to destroy the, that intimacy. If you're on the prowl and you don't think you're a valuable person until you score, you are not going to have it. Uh, and, and specifically, back to the young people, I'm not so worried that the kids are getting away with stuff. I'm really worried, especially for young women, that they would ever have this thought that the only way they're meaningful people is that they sexualize the relationship, uh, that the only thing that really gives them value is the completion of somebody else. And I think that's the, the spiritual danger that's, that's really terrible. And so um, one of the things I say in the book is um, I tell my boys that they should tell a lady um, that they love them on the first date. Now, you have to be very careful with this because you, you can't take that uh, to, to such an extreme that people misunderstand what you're saying. But you have to recognize that this is important for us to dwell on for a moment. Why does that sound weird to us? Why would it seem very odd to say I love you on the first date when in fact 
the call of uh, Christian uh, teaching is to love all people with the infinite agape love. So everybody you meet, uh, and this is not to be even flippant about it, it's to say, no, really, uh, I have love for you, daughter of heaven, if you're a young man, say. The, the question is, are you going to help me be the best? She's going to think that's a kinky pickup line. If you say like, I love you, daughter of heaven, she's going to think yeah. she's in some role playing game. See, but see, but if you didn't do it on purpose, then it would be, that'd be great. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. If you really mean it, you can't, you can't, you can't make it a gimmick. You have to you have to say it in your own way. Um, but the idea is there's no, therefore there's nothing to sexualize, right? You're not worried anymore about whether or not you are going to have intercourse to confirm this love. And this is why I say I'd rather, I, I don't mind if my kids watch South Park. I'm uncomfortable with my kids watching uh, Bachelorette or Bachelor because there the question is, I think I may be falling in love with him. What happens when I do fall in love with him? That's when I'm going to guarantee that we do have a kind of love because we're going to go to the suite, the, the whatever, the, the fantasy suite. And we're going to not consummate some kind of divine connection between two people that have made a commitment. But we're going to consummate that we're worthwhile, that we're kind of winners. We're finalists. Where are we at with Game of Thrones? Well, I've, I've seen everything up to the last uh, Were the kids, season, yeah. kids watch Game of Thrones, yay or nay? Oh, yeah. I don't. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I think the, 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 the sexuality is gratuitous. But what is that? How does that harm them? Um, I don't think my kids get uncomfortable and they say, Dad, and then they walk over and go get some soda uh, pop. Uh, but, the, but I think it's a, that's a great one that you bring that up. Because a, a, it's a realistic. Second, yeah, a simple. Yeah. I think it's seventeen year a seventeen year old seeing nakedness is uh, the universe hasn't been disrupted in in, in some kind of uh, problematic way. Um, I would be very concerned if they wasted all their time um, looking at uh, degrading pornography. That's another part of the book, but um, but seeing nudity isn't the problem. Uh, it is the assumptions. It is what uh, J.K. A. Smith calls the secular liturgies, uh, where we don't even realize that the reason the Christian world has essentially the same divorce rate as everybody else is that we don't realize that it wasn't naked movies or uh, naked miniseries on HBO that were making us um, vicious in our, in our erotic lives. It was the vice of the bad values that came through commercials. So I got a, I got a really cool um, poem there from my friend Micah Bournet called um, Carl's Jr. that he, he wrote for, uh, for me and contributed. And it's the idea that, um, that these, these kind of sec- seemingly or pseudo-sexy Carl's Jr. commercials were trying to teach him that sex was this commodity, just like a, like a burger, that was something that was for sale and that love isn't for sale. And that the idea that love is for sale is what's getting us into all, all this trouble, that it's about power and domination and ego. And uh, this is why... You know, this is why, especially in Hollywood, they can't stay married. It's worse than just that they're famous or that they're traveling. It's that they tend to be a community. Hollywood is a community of people that are all appearances. So they never really learned how to be naked in the truest sense with the other person. They're, they're a famous person and they're with this other famous person. They're not even sure who they are. And uh, when they are sitting there with each other, they can't, they can't really be sexy because there's, there's, there's no intimacy when there's no intimacy within your own sense of well-being and spiritual presence. Well, my friend, if they are, you're not far from Hollywood. And if any of those people would connect with you, I think they'd find the key to being comfortable in their own skin. And it's a great book you've written. Thank Sexy, you. The Quest for Erotic Virtue in Perplexing Times. Our listeners should read it. And thanks for talking with me about it. Yeah, I mean, I, this was great because you you teased. You are you're a great interviewer because you teased out stuff that I would have thought about. You're incredible. You're <laughs> incredible. That Am I a sexy interviewer? That's the yes. Question. Yeah, and well, I t- can I tell you what? Can I tell you why you have thirty seconds for me to tell you why? I'm, I'm, a sexy I, interviewer. I, well, if you're going to tell you're me I'm sexy, I have at least yeah. five minutes. I mean, go yeah. on. If you if you are worried, I mean, this I think maybe maybe somebody who wants to get into podcasting and do interviews like you do. I think this the step is is you have to be confident in in who you are. Right, you have to be okay. You don't. You can't be sitting here worried about what I think about your interviewing skills. You want to get at something. You want to get at the the, the nugget or the the thing that I'm I'm trying to bring. And, and most people have something interesting to bring, even not you Absolutely. know. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and so really, actually caring about somebody else and trying to figure out what what is this other human being that is that is somebody worthwhile. What do they have to say? And 
you could, if you, if you translated that to your dating relationship, instead of sitting there talking about yourself and, and your ex-girlfriends and your mom or whatever, actually getting to know the other person is very sexy, you know, and listening. So, uh, so thank you. Good job. Oh, you're, you're the best man. And we'll have you back. All right. Thanks for listening to give and take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful. If you do them, share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, Hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness. If you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give it, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Jeff for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Sexy, The Quest for Erotic Virtue in Perplexing Times. It's a great read. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.